You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, good morning, Cities Church, and Merry Christmas to you all. I, uh, I tell you, maybe only second to Easter, I think the Sunday after Christmas is the best-looking Sunday at Cities Church as everyone is sporting all their new Christmas attire. But I am especially grateful to be here and to be behind this pulpit today because as Pastor Jonathan mentioned in the welcome, this uh, is very likely the last opportunity that I will have to preach here, at least as one of your pastors. And as Jonathan mentioned, and as most of you have heard, A few months ago, our family announced that we are moving back to Washington State in the spring of next year to pursue God's call upon our lives and to continue doing gospel ministry in a region that we know very well and that we love dearly. We are excited and we are eager for what God has in store. That is very true. And yet, as our time here is quickly dwindling away, the aches and sorrows that we feel in having to say goodbye to this place, and more importantly, to you, our church, those sorrows have been growing exponentially. We love you, Cities Church. I love you, Cities Church, and it has been the privilege of a lifetime to be a pastor here. And God has been so very, very kind to my family and I in our time here. So as always, but especially today, I feel an immense privilege to step into this pulpit again and to open the very word of God with you all. Now, a quick note on this morning's message, especially for those who are newer to cities. We love preaching through whole books of the Bible here. And this year alone, we have had the joy of going through the book of Exodus and several Psalms. And then just this last week, we finished up our fall series of preaching through 2 Timothy and Titus. And then as Josh was talking about in his exhortation, next week, we start a new seven-week series looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And man, brother, it's going to be awesome. You whet my appetite for, for that series to start up. That means that I have the uh, happy privilege this Sunday of preaching a standalone sermon, which may sound easier than having an assigned passage, but personally, I find these one-off messages far more challenging because one, uh, the Bible's a huge book, and if you haven't noticed, it is filled with a lot of awesome passages that you get to go to. It's hard to just choose one. And then two, I don't have the benefit of riding the coattails of uh, the guy who preached before me, uh, nor do I have the benefit of whoever preaches next week picking up all the scraps that I have left behind. So for uh, your purposes, none of that is really here nor there, other than I wanted you to have a heads up that this morning we're going to be jumping around a little bit more than usual looking at a handful of passages, primarily from the book of Hebrews. And the primary passage, the one that Mike just read to us from Hebrews 13, that's where we're going to 
close our time. And this morning, I want for us to consider the question that comes from verse 14. What does it mean to seek the city that is to come? That seems like a really good question for us to ask, especially this time of the year. New Year's is a great time for reflection, for setting goals, for making resolutions and starting fresh. And after the year that 2020 has been, who doesn't want a fresh start? So my hope for us this morning is that we leave here with our hearts reoriented to Jesus, our feet set on a trajectory that lead us toward him and our hope fixed on the bright future that he has promised. Those of you who like a roadmap, I unfortunately don't have much of an outline for you, but I do have a main point, and if it would help you to write that down, the main takeaway from this morning's message is very simple, and it is, because of Jesus, the best is yet to come. So would you pray with me? Father, Jesus is better than anything or anyone. We believe this, and yet we need you to help our unbelief. So by your Spirit, would you take the things we know to be true in our minds, and would you sink them down into our hearts, such that our lives reflect the value and worth of your Son? Change the polarity of our hearts so that we are magnetically drawn to him and away from the sins and entanglements that currently hold us captive. And help us, especially this Christmas season, to see the significance that Jesus is real. He took on flesh, he died, and he lives and is making all things, all things including us, new. Fill us with faith, renew our hope, and strengthen us to live lives worthy of your gospel as we await Jesus' return. Amen. So if you had come over to our house, one of the first things that you would have noticed after walking in the door is a large piece of artwork hung in the center of our living room with the text, The Best is Yet to Come. Now, truth be told, I typically have a hard time with optimistic catchphrases like this. No offense to any of you here, but I get a little bit nauseated whenever I walk through the aisles of Hobby Lobby and seeing all of the live, laugh, love, or a most recent favorite was a let the world hear you roar, complete with T-Rex graphic piece of artwork. And yet, to my chagrin, I'm certain that I have seen several the best is yet to come signs, posters, and pictures at Hobby Lobby and other similar stores. But in my defense, ours was custom ordered and it was handmade for us because, trite as that little saying may first appear, it has come to mean something very profound for our family. About six years ago, our life was a wreck, to put it mildly. Now, don't get me wrong, in some regards, those were the most exciting days of our lives. We had just welcomed our first child, Judah, and we had also set out with the founding team to plant Cities Church. They were also incredibly stressful days. I was working two jobs and attending school part-time. 
While Hilly was working overnight shifts and also trying to adjust to, sleep, or to life as a sleep-deprived new mom, we functioned like ships in the night, rarely seeing each other. We were perpetually exhausted and communicating very poorly. We existed in survival mode for about a year until things finally let up and we were able to make the necessary changes to sync up our schedules and get more time together. And it was then, in the wake of that storm, that we had come to realize how much damage the previous year had done. We had changed so much, not only in becoming parents, but also living for so many months on opposite schedules that in ways it really felt like we just didn't know each other anymore. And getting to know each other again, to rebuild the relationship that we once had, well, at the time it seemed like an insurmountable challenge. I remember several conversations where we would be driving in the car or we were out on a date and we would play back the tapes, rewinding through the history of our relationship, reliving the glory days of our dating engagement or our first year of marriage together. And then in exasperation, we would look at one another and we would say, how in the world are we ever going to get back the way things were then? And to succumb to the lie that the best days of our marriage and perhaps even our lives were behind us. And that our new task was either to miraculously recapture some of the magic from the past, which seemed unlikely, or to try and cope and make it work as best as possible going forward. The defeating spot for us to land. I'll come back to the story later and and share kind of how it ends. But first, let's pause here because as humans, I think we're all kind of like this. We tend to romanticize the past, viewing the best of times as being in the rear view. We hear it in common cultural catchphrases like, in the good old days, or, well, back in my day, or the now classic, make America, or anything else for that matter, great again. All these phrases imply that we had a good thing, we've lost it, and now the hope for the future is to somehow turn back the hands of time in order to return to what we had in the past. And now, after a year like 2020, I suspect that we are even more tempted to think this way. It's easy now to romanticize 2019 when it was strange to see people wearing a mask, and when it was normal to shake hands. Oh my, how things have changed in a year. Or we think about uh, 2012 and romanticize the, the civility of politics as we remember them then when Mitt Romney graciously conceded to Obama. Several of us here might even be old enough to think back with lament on the good life before iPhones and social media with a longing to return to those simpler times. We tend to romanticize the past, but if we think critically about it, the world was really no better then than it is now. 2019, 2012, 1999, 1956, whatever year it was, it was affected by sin. And every year has brought with it its unique challenges, trials, and hardships. 
Sure, the circumstances in each year look different. And as we look back through the halls of time, we may view some years more favorably than others. But there is no such thing as the glory days. Insofar as every day of every year, the whole of creation has been groaning for salvation. So what is our hope? And how do we orient to the future when, at least for many of us at present, the future can seem rather bleak? This is where I'd like for us to open to the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 11. Hebrews 11 through 13 was the primary place that the Lord met Hilly and I amid our own marital crisis and our hopelessness about the future. And it's the place that here on the front steps of 2021, as it were, I'd like for us to turn for instruction. As you're turning there, there's a couple of things about Hebrews to note. First off, and this is purely anecdotal, Hebrews is my favorite book in the New Testament. I love the way that it weaves together the Old Testament to show the glory of Jesus and his fulfillment of all the messianic types and prophecies. And secondly, this book was addressed to a ethnic Jewish audience who were being heavily persecuted for their conversion to Christianity. The author of Hebrews wrote to encourage them with biblical arguments for Jesus' superiority to angels, Moses, the priestly order, or anything else that you could possibly compare him to, as well as to exhort them to hold fast to Jesus amid hardships. Now, obviously, our setting is just a little bit different today. Not many of us here this morning are ethnically Jewish. Even fewer of us are at risk of losing our home or our job because of following Jesus. But we're not different in every way. The message of Hebrews stands for us, which is summed up in a nutshell, no one and nothing is better than Jesus, so fix your hope wholly on him. So look with me now at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. There we read, By Abraham... By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God." If you're an underliner, highlighter, note taker, you should mark that last sentence. For he was looking forward to the foundations, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward. The Christian faith is fundamentally future oriented, it is a forward looking faith, a hope for tomorrow that changes and strengthens the way that we live today. And we see this even before Abraham, all the way back in God's promise to Adam and Eve. There in Genesis 3, after humanity's fall, God made a promise that from Eve, a son would be born who would crush Satan and destroy death. And the whole of the Old Testament has its eyes towards the fulfillment of that promise, towards the son who would finally save God's people. 
And here in Hebrews 11, this age-old promise is depicted in the establishment of a new city, a new home for the people of God. That's a great image. I've been thinking about it uh, quite a bit in light of a recent project I've been working on for, for cities. God willing, next year, 2021, our church will begin a renovation project on this building. And I and a a small task force have been working for several months now with architects and designers who are drawing up some amazing plans to maximize the potential of this space. And I really can't wait for you to see everything that they have put together because in a small way, their designs and imagination reflects the mind and the creativity of God. And it makes me think that if the world as it is right now could be represented by our building here, beautiful and yet a little dysfunctional, containing elements of glory and splendor that are then obstructed by other elements in disrepair, and yet still teeming with potential that designers and builders are going to realize. Well, If this building is a a small picture of what our world is like, imagine what the new world, the new city that God himself is designing and building is going to be like. Imagine that glory realized. That is a world or a city or to extend the metaphor, a building that I would want to inhabit, a place I would want to make my home in forever. And that's the hope, right? That's the future orientation of faith. We see the unseen, what is not yet fully realized. And we see it by beholding in God's word the designs and the plans that he has chosen to reveal to us and trust that he is going to bring these things to perfect completion. Now look back at Hebrews 11 with me. We're gonna drop down a few verses to verse 13. These, Abraham's family and God's people who came before him, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. When God's people are looking forward, looking ahead to the fulfillment of God's promise to build them a home with himself, they live differently in this world. These saints of old saw themselves as strangers and exiles on the earth. They had no homeland, no hometown. They were not at home here. And consider that with me. I mean, especially given how we are wired as humans, I think that it could be said almost more than anything, what we really want is just to be at home. That's why songs like I'll be home for Christmas, resonate generation after generation, right? We all want a place to belong, 
a place where we're accepted and loved, where we're comfortable and at rest. Home is that place of peace, security, safety, and delight. And yet, none of us can find a true, lasting home in this world. We're all looking for that place of perfect peace and belonging and love, but it just doesn't seem to exist. Not here anyways, not yet. And that's because we're made to be at home with the triune God. We are made to feel the proud delight that our heavenly father takes in us as his children. We are built to forever enjoy the brilliance of Jesus, our Savior, and to be overflowing with the love and power of the Holy Spirit. But here, our demonic accuser fills us with doubts about the depths of our Heavenly Father's love. Here, we get distracted by lesser glories and are therefore unsatisfied by the greatness of Jesus. Here, Our loves are dulled as our flesh and spirit go to war against one another in competing desires. Not to mention, as 2020 has so aptly reminded us, even the best things here are not guaranteed or they don't last. Parents die. Pregnancies miscarry. Spouses walk out, trusted leaders fail, communities divide, economies crash. This world and every possible home that it offers proves to be at best fragile and temporary, which is why we need a better country, a heavenly one, a home that is secure, That is, one man said, a home where thieves cannot break in and steal, where moth nor rust can destroy. That's the kind of home we need. Amen. So all of us are longing for home. And because of our family origins in Eden, we intuitively keep looking behind, looking to the past to find that home that we long for. But the message of the Bible is that our home is not buried somewhere deep in our past, but that it is being built, currently being built by God, who himself will bring us there. Okay, so flashback for a moment with me to the story that I was sharing about Hilly and I. I left off with the two of us feeling hopeless about our future, caught in a feedback loop of our felt needs and desires for comfort, frustrated that our circumstances had changed and responsibilities grown such that we no longer enjoyed the relationship as we once had. Stuck in the present, wishing for an opportunity to return to how things were in our past and blind to what God was building for the future, And it was through these passages that God started to open our eyes and lift our heads. We began to see him, ourselves, and our lives for what they were in light of God's promises. The future orientation of faith changed our perspective such that we began to see that because we had this new city, this heavenly home to look forward to, 
Well, if we're looking forward to that, then our best days must be ahead of us, not behind us. Hence, our custom living room artwork, the best is yet to come. And this hope, this infusion of light and beauty into our future, well, it began to change the way that we lived in the present. And there's, there's more to be said here. You see, it's not lost on me that all of the talk of this new city and a heavenly home, that can feel really abstract and becomes really easy to over-spiritualize. But in case any of us forgotten, we are embodied creatures with flesh and blood. We are not abstractions or ideas. We live in a physical, tangible world. And because we struggle to hold the spiritual, dom the spiritual domain and the physical domain together in tension with one another, we often tend to fall off on one side or the other. Either we downplay the significance of the physical, viewing it as a corrupting hindrance that keeps us from the pure spiritual things that God has called us to, or we minimize the spiritual, forgetting about all the worlds and realms beyond our own, and we prioritize almost exclusively what we can see and touch here and now. But Jesus defies both of these pitfalls and the false assumptions about reality. And there's two places I want for us to go to see this. One is Hebrews 13, but where I want us to go first is Hebrews 2 and the good news of Christmas. So if you would flip back just a few pages or scroll up to Hebrews 2, starting at verse 14, we see, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh and blood and lived among us. He developed calluses on his hands as he worked as a carpenter. And when he spoke over enormous crowds, his vocal cords vibrated. And I imagine that he even experienced a coarseness of his voice after uh, these, these big sermons. He perspired and had to trim his fingernails and groom his hair and probably had to roll around until finding the right position to fall asleep in. And then when he was nailed to a cross, his very real flesh was pierced and very real blood dripped from his hands and his feet. And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised physically, bodily, as a man, and all the while remaining fully God. And even now, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in a physical form, glorified, yes, but tangible, visible, filled with matter 
and for us, Jesus's matter matters. Those who see the world of the spiritual as pure and the physical as dirty, well, they would be horrified at the thought of God taking on, much less keeping a physical body. And the materialists of today, they simply can't accept that Jesus is God because they can't believe that anything lives beyond this mortal life. Jesus, through his first coming as the God-man, which we celebrate this season of Christmas, defies them both, which is good news for we who possess embodied souls. It's good news because the reason Jesus took on flesh, the reason he came was to fulfill the very promise, the promises that we looked at in Hebrews 11. He is the promised savior the long-awaited son of Eve, the one who came to destroy death and the devil and to deliver his people from slavery. He is the cornerstone of God's promised city and the home for his people. Jesus is the king who rules over the better heavenly country that we will one day dwell in. In Jesus, the promises of God took on flesh and were realized through the spilling of his real blood and the resurrection of his real body. And because of Hebrews 2, when we come to Hebrews 13, verse 12, and read, so Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, we know what the author is saying. Jesus, the Messiah, has come to save us. This is why Christmas matters. He came to die for sin. He rose to conquer death once and for all so that we might live by grace through faith in his finished work. But Hebrews 13 doesn't end there. If you look with me at verse 13, it continues with a direct application for us. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, once again, these verses can at first seem pretty abstract. But when we think about it as a call to go to Jesus, the embodied Savior, well, our problems of abstraction, of the ideological, are suddenly solved. Hebrews 13.13 isn't just a thought experiment, but it touches on every aspect of human experience. Consider this exhortation from the perspective of a first century Jew who has just become a Christian. Going outside of the camp refers to the book of Leviticus and its instructions for sacrifices, uncleanliness, and sin. Sacrifices for sin were to be burned outside of the camp, away from the dwelling of the Jewish community. Lepers were to remain outside of the camp so as to maintain the purity of the people. And Leviticus 24 describes how a blasphemer was to be stoned outside of the camp for his sin. Now Jesus, who was accused of blasphemy by the first century Jewish leaders, was taken outside of the camp to the hill called Golgotha, and that's where he was hung to die a sinner's death. So that changes the meaning when we think of the author of Hebrews calling these Jewish converts to Christianity to go to him, to go outside of the camp. 
It meant for them to leave very real, tangible, physical comforts of their community. It meant to walk in faithful obedience to Jesus, which would cost them their social standing, their livelihoods, their homes and material possessions, and quite possibly their very lives, given the intensity of the persecution at the time. Leaving the camp and going to Jesus was not ideological. It was not merely a spiritual exercise, but it had real cost. The cost wasn't only losses and sacrifices. It also meant seeking, seeking in real ways, physical ways, the city that was to come. It required gathering in homes built by human hands. It required writing letters and books and preaching the gospel with real words, which would later be recorded and translated into other real words in other languages. It meant working everyday jobs, contributing to society, building new businesses, seeking the city that is to come meant planting churches, mentoring and discipling young believers, standing up to politicians, getting married and having children, fighting just wars as necessary, starting hospitals, forming educational institutions, and advancing technologies that would help spread the gospel message and further realize the city that is to come. First century Christians, the readers of Hebrews, Yes, they had to be willing to lose anything, but they were also ready to build everything that was required in order to follow Jesus, in order to go to him, and in order to inhabit the city that he himself is building in our midst and will one day fully realize when he comes again. There were people who prayed as Jesus taught them, Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done here, here in our home, on our street, in our neighborhood, in our city, and throughout the earth as it is in heaven. They prayed, they set their trajectory on ever being closer to Jesus, and they got to work with the future hope of knowing that Jesus would return, that they would be at home with him, and that their labors would not be in vain. This was the realization, largely through these passages, that God brought Hilly and I to see during the lowest of lows in our marriage. Yes, this world is ultimately not our home. And yes, the security and comfort and peace that we ultimately long for will not be realized, at least in full, until Jesus returns. That's not a fatalistic grin and bear it until he comes again message because as Hebrews says, and as faithful Christians have done throughout the millennia, we seek the city that is to come actively, prayerfully, physically. Because Jesus is king and because his kingdom is being realized as his gospel goes forth and the nations are discipled, the future Christian is incredibly bright. 
and we are invited to be part of its realization through faithfully going to Jesus. Thus, in our lives, the best days are always ahead because each passing day brings us one step closer to Jesus and one day nearer to his return and our arrival in our final home. This means that while we don't know exactly what's in store for 2021, and while we can expect hardships and trials, we do know that God intends good for us. We do know that he's going to mature us to grow us in his love, to make us more like himself. Because Jesus will return in this life, the best is always yet to come. This is what brings us to the table. If you are in Christ, this table, this tiny little wafer and this thimble full of wine, they're reminders to you that the best is yet to come and that he is coming physically, tangibly. As you eat and as you drink, remember the call of Hebrews to go to Jesus. Doing so will have real costs. Testifying to Jesus will at times mean losing social standing within your friend group or your workplace. Fighting your sin is going to require you confessing and owning up to wrongdoing and suffering the consequences Investing in God's kingdom purposes may mean a career change, a pay reduction, or it may mean stewarding your finances radically differently. It may mean altering your daily habits and priorities. There is real sacrifice and self-denial in going to Jesus. But seeking the city that is to come also dignifies your work with eternal significance. I was thinking about friends in my community group. And if you're an electrician, you get to wire houses with work ethic that testifies to the ethics of the eternal city. If you're an occupational therapist, you get to care for children and adults with the hope that they will one day inhabit resurrection bodies in which your therapeutic work will be completed. As a developer, you can create apps and websites that show off the creativity and the ease of use and help spread the message of this heavenly city. Mothers, perhaps have the most important job in this room as you get to raise your sons to fight for righteousness and your daughters to adorn the coming city of God as they glorify God with their good works done in Jesus's name. All these things and more you do because Jesus is faithful. And as you go to him, he is using you to build his city, the home that here we experience in part, but will one day enjoy in full when Jesus returns. So though 2020 has been a dark year, The hope of 2021 is not to go back to life as it was in 2019 or any other time in the past. Rather, the hope for 2021 is as bright as Jesus's own face as we look to him and pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done in and through us.
So now as the band and as the pastoral team come up and prepare to serve communion, I'll mention that this table is prepared for the members of City's Church. But if you have fixed your hope in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and are longing for his return, then we invite you to eat with us. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus for salvation, today he welcomes you to call upon him, to place your hope now and forever in him alone. But if that's not you, we would ask that you would refrain from partaking in the elements. And we want you to know that we're glad you're here and we would love to connect with you after the service. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. If you just hold out your hand like this, we'll drop the cup into your hand. Let us serve you.